0: Have you ever wondered how Mr. Rogers became Mr. Rogers? I don't don't mean the icon of children's television. I I mean became the person that he is, became the neighbor that he is. Well, one day, little Fred, when he was walking home from school, walked the 10 blocks between the school and his house, and a group of boys showed up uh, behind him. They were yelling, "Freddy, hey fat Freddy." And he ran in terror through the neighborhood, and this group pursued him. He would never forget the fear and the shame of that moment. There's another moment that Fred Rogers would never forget, and that was high school. He was shy, sickly, and withdrawn. One day, the school of jock injured his kidney on the football field. Jim Stumbaugh. And uh, they asked Fred Rogers to visit Jim each day in the hospital, to take Jim his homework assignments. And he did. And the two of them built an unlikely friendship. When Jim recovered and got back to school, he pulled Fred into his circle of friends. He's the most popular guy on campus. As Mr. Rogers would later tell the story, Jim effectively said, you know, that Rogers kid's okay," And now Fred had a circle of friends. As he remembers it, it's almost as if he said to me, I like you just the way you are. See, he was no longer Fat Freddy. He was becoming something else. Well, this is a moment at UPC when we're asking who we're becoming individually, but especially as a church. And it's a process. So don't worry if the new vision doesn't make sense to you yet, or you're not ready to adopt it, it's okay. We all have questions, believe me, I have questions, but we are in this together. We're asking what's next door, like Paul would pray for an open door. Uh, the plans won't come for us until the fall. We understand that. But we're asking now, what will it look like to put less emphasis on getting people into church and more on living as the church? What will it look like to move the center of gravity from our church campus to the neighborhoods of Seattle? We're also asking, who's next door? Because remember, God moves flesh and blood into uh, the neighborhood, and God is doing it to reconcile the world to himself in Jesus Christ. Remember, when we say reconcile, what we mean is to overcome what divides us, what disconnects us from God and from one another. So let's just recap the series. We uh, know now the where, it's the neighborhoods. We know now the what, it's reconciliation. Today we begin to pivot and shift towards the how. How? Do we join Jesus in his mission to reconcile all people? And the answer in a word is together. We're going to do it together. Let's see how Jesus talks about it when a theology student or a lawyer, uh, as Luke calls him, puts him on the spot. Will you pull out your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29? That's on page 844. And as you turn there, if you're able, would you stand with me so that we can read God's word aloud uh, together, When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Luke 10, 25 through 29. I'm going to kind of cut it mid-paragraph there just before the story. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him... Well, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Who is my neighbor? That's a good question. We've been asking that question. And by the way, the story that comes next gives a great definition uh, for neighbor. The neighbor is the person right in front of you, according to Jesus. The neighbor is the person you would have to avoid to miss. I like that. But today I want to focus less on the neighbor part, and more on the becoming part, because that's the focus for Jesus. Look at verse 36. Look at what Jesus asks, who became a neighbor? Our translation says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? But the word actually records of Jesus is not was, but become. That's the literal translation here, verse 36, who became a neighbor, it's interesting, interesting. This is not about who someone is. This is about who someone becomes. I like that, let me tell you why. I'm not a very likely candidate to be a neighbor. Maybe this will surprise you, but I don't see myself as a very religious person. I didn't go to church, Uh, I wasn't raised in a religious home. I came to know Jesus later in life. Now he's the most important person in my life, but I I still see myself as just a regular guy, very rough around the edges. But it's not just that. It's also that I'm pretty good at avoiding people. I'm an, uh, uh, an introvert. I'm an individualist. I'm a happy loner. I remember reading a book called Desert Solitaire, about a man who lives by himself in a trailer in the desert. And I remember thinking, now that sounds pretty good. (laughs) I'm not like Clark in Ballard who whines about not connecting in Seattle. I'm going, and the problem is, I mean, no one's bothering him. This is perfect. What I'm saying is, if I'm supposed to be a neighbor, I've got a whole lot of becoming to do with God and people I wonder if Jesus sees something of me in this lawyer, this hard-charging, type-A, task-oriented guy who pushes through to Jesus, he butts in, and he cuts through all the God talk with a no-break-shift, bottom-line question. You know, it's not even a question, it's more of a test to see if Jesus, under pressure, can string together an answer that could possibly stand up to his straight A, Ivy League pedigree. So here it comes, what do I have to do to get the life of eternity, he asks. What do I have to do? And of course, Jesus loves this guy too much to cut him down to size. He comes for guys like me, too. Um, No, rather, Jesus takes the bait and tells him a story. But it's not a story about doing. It's a story about becoming. And spoiler alert, the bottom line is you need a circle of friends. This at least is what the guy in the ditch is thinking. I need a circle of friends, right? The story here is the one that we call the Good Samaritan. It's a story about a dangerous road and a guy who makes the unfortunate decision to travel that road alone. No one would have done that. And in the story, you are that guy. Now, I know we like to identify with the Samaritan, the hero we think that we're supposed to. But that's just not the way Jesus frames the story. And trust me, the Samaritan is the last guy, the last guy that any Jew would identify with as they hear this story. No. As soon as Jesus starts the story, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, you say, that's me. I'm that guy. A Jew, you're a Jew, going it alone, in a dangerous place. Then uh, uh, you know the story: a group of bullies ambushes you, chases you, and, unlike Fred Rogers, they get you, beat you, rob you, and leave you for dead. You are in the ditch, and then footsteps. <gasps> uh oh, are they coming back for me? You slit a swollen eye. Oh, it's a Jew. One of our guys, a priest even, thank you, God. But he swerves and walks by. Later, footsteps, uh-oh, oh Oh, wait, it's a Jew again. Oh, good. One of our guys. Ah, it's a Levite. Awesome. But he swerves and walks by. What, the frankincense? The guy in the ditch, which is you, has got to be thinking, you know, I can sure use a friend right now. He didn't know he needed one, but now he does. And the most likely of all candidates just walked by, both of them, as though they have no connection with him at all. No connection. Come on. A priest and a Levite? They're nothing if not representatives and agents of reconciliation. Reconciliation. They're coming from the temple where the miracle of reconciliation happens every single day, where God overcomes, what disconnects us. These are agents of reconciliation. And yet my metaphorical bacon is just about to get saved by a guy I'm not only disconnected from, but proudly so. We can only imagine that a theology student finds the story both inspiring and nauseating. we usually focus on how the story would have to expand his circle of friends. You know, who's in and who's out. And it does that. But even before it does that, I think it calls into question whether he's even got a circle of friends at all. Or at least one with God at the center. There he is, half dead. What good is all that Torah memorization if it leaves you half dead? Alone. What good if it can't give you enough life to get back and forth from the temple, let alone into eternity? This isn't just a story about a guy in a ditch. This is a story about the one telling the story. This is a story about the reconciler of it all. This is a story about Jesus. You see, God has come to do just what Jeremiah said he would do to build a people He started with a circle of friends, didn't he? Twelve of them, one for each tribe. God is recalling Israel from exile. He's gathering the diaspora in Jesus to build reconciled and reconciling communities. The rich with the poor, the sick with the healthy, the sinner with the righteous, the Gentile with the Jew. And as Luke tells the story in his second book called Acts, The Holy Spirit will circle friends like these in neighborhoods from Jerusalem to Africa to Rome. That's how neighbors become God's people. Which one of these, Jesus asked, do you think became a neighbor? It takes a circle of friends to become a neighbor, Princeton sociologist Robert Wuthnow argues, there's a difference between having friends and having a circle of friends. Listen to this. One of his interview subjects said, I used to be in this group of people who met weekly and that was a specific circle of friends where we really did help each other out, sharing problems, sharing whatever. Now my friends are more linear. I'm friends with this person, I'm friends with that person, but I don't have a circle of friends who sort of know each other right now. Now here's what Wuthnow says about that. He says, the difference is that a circle provides for more internal accountability than a series of linear relationships. If your friends don't know each other, you, even without thinking about it, play up one side of yourself to this friend and a different side to someone else. One friend, for example, can be a confidant on spiritual issues. Another can share babysitting, but have no spiritual points of intersection at all. When your friends all know each other, this is Dr. Wuth at Princeton, Because they are in the same group, you are more likely to experience the tendency towards personal consistency that fellow believers call discipleship. Your friends can compare notes to see if you're treating them all the same. They can decide whether you need advice, For them to all get along with each other, they are likely to agree on certain principles themselves, and this agreement will minimize your chances of being pulled in widely different directions. Close quote. Did you catch that? Friends in lines, linear relationships, each see a different side of you. You know, there's a church you, work you, home you, gym you, party you, And they don't need to be the same you, because you're seeing them one at a time. The question, though, is which is the real you? Which is the you you? But friends in a circle are not just connected with you. They're connected to each other. There's an implicit agreement defining the group. There's a center to the group. And and they see the same you, one you. They can compare notes, the sociologist says. The point is, lines of friend tend to disintegrate or fragment us, but circles of friend tend to integrate and grow us as disciples. We become. It's interesting. It's in circles of friends that we've become who we are at UBC. Have you experienced one? a small group, a core group, a care group, a task force, a fellowship group. I got an email last week from J.J. Kissinger, our director of Side by Side. Side by Side is a circle of friends who've decided their primary neighborhood is families with seriously sick children. Last month, they gathered on Bainbridge Island, many of you were there, and they opened the door. They invited a family with a four-year-old with leukemia, This family had never been involved with organized religion at all. It wasn't what they expected. It was wonderful. Later, the mom told another friend, we had no idea that church people could be like that. (laughs) In his email to me, JJ wrote, I'm hoping she was referring to the love and kindness (laughs) rather than the toilet paper fight and the ribbon dancers and matching leotards. But who can be sure? We had no idea that church people could be like that. Be like what? Super religious? No. Super extroverted? No. Toilet paper and tights? Maybe. But definitely love and kindness. Love and kindness. Friends circling around them as they circle around Jesus. Friends who saw their pain and didn't swerve. Friends who took the hands of the shy and sickly and took them into their own. Friends who saw them and looked around the circle and said, Hey, you know, these people are okay. Love and kindness. They felt it around the circle, they felt it in the friendship. Not so much who these people were as who they were becoming. See, once we identify our primary neighborhoods, and I know that's a struggle, we're going to circle with our friends around Jesus. It's in our mission statement. We're a family of communities. It's in our second value, living as family, which means we share life together in circles of community. And it's in our strategy. Now, we'll be talking more about that later, but let me just give you the name of it. we call it. we've made up a word for missional community, for missional community. Don't Google it. We get to define it ourselves. It's not there. For missional community, this is what we mean by it. It's a way of life, and occurs when circles of friends I think we have a slide for this. It occurs when circles of friends live like family on mission for their neighbors, being formed in the process. For missional community is a way of life and occurs when circles of friends live like family on mission for their neighbors being formed as disciples in the process. It's people becoming formed on mission in community, for community. As we look to the future, friends, we're not going to do anything alone. We can't do anything alone. I know a lot of us, are, 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 our hands are so filled with our own problems, we don't have any space for our neighbors at all. That's okay. Because we're not gonna do it by ourselves. Because together we become healthy. It's in circles of friends that we bear one another's burdens. Fear, stress, anxiety, illness, shame. We can't do this alone because together we become reconcilers. It's in circles of friends that we share the good news with one another and move it to the center of our lives. We can't do this alone because together we become the body of Christ. And that's where our neighbors see Jesus. As he said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. John 13, 35. And then John seventeen twenty one, May they all be one so that the world will believe that you have sent me, Jesus says. How can we be agents of reconciliation if we don't circle with one another around Jesus and actively practice reconciliation? God calls us into circles of community so that we can become reconcilers and so that our neighbors can see an example of credible and authentic reconciliation and be invited to join that. It starts with a circle of friends circling around Jesus. And, you know, I, I used to resist this. By nature, I'm like Linus, you know. He says to Charlie Brown, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. I see them and swerve. But after three decades of walking with this Jesus, I'm coming to believe that he's the one putting them in my path even the hard-to-love ones. You've heard me say, you know, every group has an E-G-N person, which stands for Extra Grace Needed. And if you don't know who it is in your circle, guess what? It's you. You're the one. But you know what? When it's not you, just know this. They're there for you to help you become a neighbor. No, so now I'm circling around. I know now that I am who I am because of the people who have circled around Jesus with me. A circle of hikers in high school, a circle of rowers in college, circles of grad students, young marrieds, failed parents, leaders. I'm still circling with friends, and I'm still becoming a neighbor. Our homework this week is to pray through our becoming. So I want to invite you to join me in becoming neighbors. What I mean by this is, let's be in process. Let's be intentional about what's not finished in us and what we're doing to to move the gospel to the center of our lives in those places. Let's be like good theology students. Are we reading and memorizing scripture? Are we growing in our love for God and our love for our neighbors? Do you have a circle of friends? How is it intentional about circling around Jesus (laughs) and how might it be? Take some time this week to talk about that. And then let's pray as we get closer to the fall that God will connect you with others who will circle with you in your primary neighborhood, a circle into which several of you might join together and then invite neighbors as you become neighbors. You need a circle of friends. That's how Mr. Rogers became Mr. Rogers. Fat Freddy never made it out of the hospital room with Jim Stumbaugh. He was gone. Oh, Fred's weight hadn't changed a single ounce, but his life was changing inside a circle of friends. Friends. The surprise for the hard-charging, type-A, task-oriented guy comes in the ditch where Jesus has laid him, spent and wounded. The surprise is love and kindness. It's there in the text. It's hidden in the word Jesus uses in verse 33. It's breaking out deep inside the Samaritan as he bends over you, wounded. It's translated moved with pity in our passage or had compassion in the King James Version, but it's a very special word. It it describes a deep response that doesn't come from the head. The word suggests it comes from the gut, comes from God's gut, comes from who God is. In 12 New Testament uses, it's only used of God or a character standing in the place of God. It's the love and kindness that provokes God's grace Ignites God's compassion and moves God to action. And now it's breaking out in friendship, hidden in an ordinary friend. You know, Mr. Rogers was a little guy who struggled with his weight at times. As a grown up, he'd get on the scale every single day, not to see if he could lose weight. No, it's better to be healthy at any weight. He got on the scale because he wanted to see the number 143 pop up. (laughs) 143? It was his favorite number. Why? Well, he, he tells us, he said one day, it takes one letter to say I, and four letters to say love, and three letters to say you. One, four, three. It's what God wants to say to you today. It's what God wants to say through you today in a circle of friends. I love you. Let's pray. God, you must have brought us here today just to hear those three words because we need them. We need them like we need nothing else. Would you crack open the hard places of our heart and pour in that love? Would you awaken us with your Holy Spirit, the sacred breath of heaven, to renew and revive us as your people, to send us out as people who aren't ready yet, but who are becoming neighbors, even as we join Jesus on his mission to reconcile all? Would you fill us with your love so that our hands and our hearts are so full of it that it can't help but overflow in the lives of our neighbors? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.